Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to a history of Europe, key battles, the siege of Chateau Gaillard, part two of four. Last week I talked about the period of English history after the Battle of Hastings and up to the formation of the Angevin Empire, a collection of territories brought together under the control of King Henry II of England. Today I would like to cover the similar period, more from the French perspective. In a previous podcast, on the Battle of Tours, I described the formation of the Kingdom of the Franks, established by King Clovis in the generation after the fall of the Roman Empire. This time was characterised by political instability, caused by the tradition of dividing a king's territory between his surviving sons, and a near-constant internecine conflict that resulted. The key figure in reuniting the territories of modern-day France was Charles Martel, who also successfully fended off attacks from the Muslim forces from Spain in the said Battle of Tours of the year 732. One of the key pillars of legitimacy for the Frankish kings ever since the days of Clovis was their strong links to the Pope and the prestige that this brought. Christianity helped bind culturally the lands of France, England, Western Germany and Italy into an idea known as Christendom. For centuries these lands were threatened by outsiders, the pagan Vikings and the Magyars and also Muslims. But as these threats subsided around the turn of the millennium, Christendom became more confident and started expanding into neighbouring regions. The clergy of the period had enormous influence. They had a monopoly of written culture since they were the only literate class. So over time secular laws were eroded as priests worked to assemble collections of divinely inspired laws. The most powerful of these was the power of the Pope to excommunicate subjects, that is, exclude them for a specific period from the Christian community and divine grace. And in general the religious elite were able to keep a watchful eye upon the princes, criticising those doing wrong and singing the praises of those who conformed. They would also regularly cast judgments on when military action was or was not in their eyes justified against a rival. They could also choose to sanction or oppose a marriage proposal, a powerful tool when many of the power struggles of the time were between families for whom marriage alliances were a vital element of diplomacy. In the 10th century, France became ever more politically fragmented. The West Frankish monarchy, the successors of Clovis and Charles Martel, attempted to maintain control by assigning regions to favoured individuals but they failed to keep them subordinate. Virtually autonomous principalities were formed, such as Aquitaine and Burgundy, 
but they also proved too large to retain political unity and split further into various counties. However, in the 11th century, the increase in population and development of trade encouraged a new tendency towards the reconstruction again of larger political units, often formed by an accumulation of lordships and counties. Thus were formed, for example, Normandy, Brittany, Anjou, Blois and Flanders. There was no uniformity about this process. Each one formed from below according to local conditions rather than from above by central decree. For example, Brittany and the northwest corner of France had always managed to retain a degree of autonomy from Carolingian aggression and had claims to have once been a kingdom of its own. Burgundy likewise had a proud history, but by the 11th century had been brought close within the orbit of the King of France, thanks to strategic wedding alliances. Meanwhile, the Duchy of Normandy and the County of Flanders had been carved out by local lords, able to provide the local population some protection from Viking attacks, something which the kings of France had repeatedly proved unable to achieve. Two of the realms became significant powers during this period, despite lacking much historical basis, namely the counties of Blois and Anjou, situated on the banks of the lower river Loire. The main cultural divide within France was between north and south. The northerners seldom travelled south except when on pilgrimage. And when they did so, after crossing the Loire Valley, they came across men and women who dressed differently, had different table manners, and did not even speak the same language. Their memory of the Goths was preserved in the great cities of Toulouse and Narbonne, and throughout the south of France, the collective consciousness was imbued with the memory of ancient Rome, which still defined the local culture. The survival of classical structures meant that public authority was rooted much more firmly in the cities than was the case in the north. Here, the two main political entities were Toulouse and Aquitaine. Aquitaine was a large, sprawling, very loosely governed territory that comprised the southwestern quarter of medieval France and included Gascony and the city of Bordeaux. The influence of the Dukes of Aquitaine looked north to the county of Poitou and south where they had links with Navarre and Barcelona. It was a warm, fertile region which traded mainly in wine and salt. The kings of France, through historical connections, claimed overlordship over all of France, but in practice held no direct power outside a small piece of land called the Royal Domain, focused around Paris, Orleans and Sens. Their dynasty was called the Capetians, named after Hugh Capet, who became King of France in the year 987. The first King of France to make a lasting contribution to the centralisation of royal power was Louis VI, who ruled from 1108 to 1137. Much of his reign was spent fighting local barons. One example was in the year 1111, when the French king was in conflict with the Count of Moulin, whose lands directly neighboured Paris, 
but were held in vassalage to King Henry I of England. In response to provocations from knights lower to the king, the Count of Moulin decided to retaliate, and even threatened to cross the River Seine and sack the king's palace at Paris. Despite such vulnerability at the time, the king stressed as emphatically as possible the unique role accorded to the royal crown, in virtue of its historic links with Clovis and Charlemagne, which in theory made him superior to all other lords. Over time, Louis VI slowly but considerably managed to reinforce his power. His reputation was later enhanced by his biography, prepared by his loyal adviser, Abbot Chaguer of Saint-Denis, which offers a fully developed portrayal of his character, in contrast to what little is known about most of his predecessors. Louis's greatest success was the gaining of greater political control within his royal domain, which meant that its resources could be more effectively exploited. During his reign, Paris rose in importance, overtaking Orléans as the most important royal city. The king's powers depended to a large extent on his close alliance with the popes, who in this period were happy to foster a relationship with the French, in order to act as a counterweight to the influence of the German emperors, with whom they had a turbulent relationship. Louis was succeeded by his son, Louis the Young, who was crowned Louis the Seventh in 1137. Having been educated by and aimed for the church before the death of his elder brother, Louis the Seventh was very pious, and he was also very clever and devious. Shortly before becoming king, he married Eleanor, who had herself just inherited the important southwestern duchy of Aquitaine. The marriage was a diplomatic triumph, adding greatly to the royal holdings. Over his reign, Louis VII contributed considerably to the Capetian tradition of the pious ruler. Yet in his early years he had several disagreements with the clergy and the Pope over church appointments. The French kings generally avoided the kind of bitter confrontation that occurred at this period with the more interfering German emperors or kings of England, However, they did still expect their wishes to be taken into account by the papacy. Already in Louis VII's first year as king, he clashed with Pope Innocent II over the election of the Archbishop of Bourges. The dispute went on for seven years and was exploited by Count Theobald of Blois, who allied with the papacy against the king. Louis reacted to Theobald's threats by invading his lands and was responsible for an act which he came bitterly to regret, the setting on fire of the church at Vitry, killing several hundred people who were sheltering inside. Possibly Louis undertook the Second Crusade to absolve himself of the sin of Vitry. In my podcasts on the Battle of Hattin, I described what a disaster the Crusade was, militarily speaking. Though in retrospect, the crusade is judged to have been poorly planned and incompetently led, contemporary opinion was much kinder to the king than later historians have been. In the West, the Byzantine emperor, Manuel, was cast as a scapegoat, a view encouraged by the chronicler Odo of Duil, whose account of the expedition was written partly to vilify the Greeks and partly to glorify the French king. 
and Sir Louis was able to use his act of going on holy crusade to successfully make peace with the Pope and transform his image from that of a petulant youth to that of a pious king, loyal to the church. In the next years, Louis portrayed himself as champion of the church, partly out of genuine piety, but often to justify acts carried out in self-interest. He undertook expeditions to defend the church outside the royal domain, beyond those areas where the Capetians previously had an interest. In this way, he brought local lords to heel and spread his influence in Aquitaine, Toulouse and Burgundy. Perhaps Louis' greatest problem in the middle of his reign was his difficult relationship with his wife, Eleanor of Aquitaine. His ally, Pope Eugenius III, did his best to reconcile the couple, but to no avail. A factor in the king's decision to divorce his wife was that Eleanor had provided him with no sons, only two daughters, and so no male heir. He had certainly not expected Henry, one of his vassals, to then go and marry Eleanor without his permission. With hindsight, this decision can be seen as a terrible misjudgment. Louis not only lost rights to the very substantial lands of Aquitaine, but he allowed the territory to fall into the hands of a rival, Henry Plantagenet. The historian Dan Jones explains, quote, Eleanor's marriage to Henry transformed the map of France at a stroke. Henry's control of Normandy, Anjou, Maine and Touraine was now fused with the giant duchy of Aquitaine. One vassal now theoretically controlled virtually the entire western seaboard of the kingdom, on almost half the landed territory. By seeking an annulment of his marriage to Eleanor, Louis had made an entirely understandable decision. In letting her fall into Henry Plantagenet's hands, he had committed an inexcusable blunder. End quote. Yet on the other hand, how could Louis have expected to foresee the events that unfolded? At the time of the divorce, the King of England was still Stephen. The accession of Henry II to the English throne came surprisingly rapidly as a result of the death of Stephen's son, Eustace, in 1153, and Stephen's own sudden death the year after. Louis VII tried to counter Henry by supporting Eustace, but his efforts failed, and the powerful new Angevin Empire emerged. Indeed, as described last week, Henry II spent the 1150s successfully strengthening his position by consolidating control over border territories, from Scotland and Ireland to Flanders and Brittany. For the remainder of his reign, Louis' chief preoccupation outside his domain was inevitably with Henry II, who became a serious threat to the future of Capetian France. But despite this, the Plantagenets, by virtue of their lands in France, were technically still vassals of the French king, a tie which in more favourable circumstances could be exploited. To add to Louis VII's annoyance, Eleanor provided Henry II with many children. Seven reached adulthood, including four sons, between whom Henry decided to split his inheritance. His eldest son, Henry the Young King, who married Louis VII's daughter, Prince Margaret, is described as a feckless youth, but a skilled horseman, with a real fondness for jousting. He was set to inherit the bulk of his father's lands, England, Anjou and Normandy. The second son, Richard, was the closest to his mother, 
and it was therefore decided that he should inherit her part of the Angevin Empire, the Duchy of Aquitaine and the County of Poitou. In order to make this acceptable to Louis VII, Henry proposed that Richard would become the vassal only of the French king, not of his elder brother, and proposed a marriage between Richard and Louis' daughter, Alice. The third son, Geoffrey, was married to the only daughter of the Duke of Brittany, who was then effectively forced to abdicate in exchange for the English earldom of Richmond. The king decreed that Geoffrey, on coming of age, was to rule as Duke of Brittany, holding the duchy and feudal tenure from his eldest brother. Henry's youngest son, John, would inherit no land, and so gain the nickname John Lackland. The plan was outlined to Louis at a conference in Montmorel in January 1169. It was in part devised out of realisation that it would have been very difficult to pass on the whole Angevin Empire in one lot to one person, and was in part a concession to the French king. This was some way from Louis's worst fears of a perpetual Plantagenet Empire, which under the English crown could overshadow its rival in Paris. The agreement at Montmorel thus helped to breach a truce between the two kings. Henry II, in his later years, was perhaps enjoying his status of elder statesman, and probably felt that he had done his best to ensure the best outcome for, for his family after his death. Unfortunately for him, his best-laid plans would soon all unravel. Louis VII had not been idle on the diplomatic front. After a short, unsuccessful second marriage, the French king married Adela of Champagne in 1160, cementing his improving relations with the nobles of the county of Champagne. Adela's brothers, Theobald V, Count of Blois, and Henry the Liberal, who was Count of Champagne, became vital supporters of the French crown after marrying Louis's two daughters by Eleanor. Louis also married his sister Constance to the Count of Toulouse, and later brought Flanders into the coalition against Henry II by marrying his son, Philip, to Isabella of Hainaut, the Count of Flanders' niece. Louis also gained prestige and influence by his support of the papacy, allowing his lands twice to become a refuge to popes who faced opposition in Rome, firstly to Eugenius III and then to Alexander II, who had to deal with a rival antipope. The French king also provided refuge to Thomas of Becket, the Archbishop of Canterbury, who fell out with Henry II. Thomas's subsequent murder in Canterbury Cathedral caused Henry many problems with the church and papacy and helped give Louis, in comparison, the moral advantage. By the time Louis VII had died in 1180, he had brought his Capetian dynasty to a new height. Master of the royal domain and thus of a safe income, he had improved royal administration and extended royal influence through his realm. He made great efforts to present himself as king of all France, and although in his lifetime never gained solid control outside his domain, he was able to set the path for his son Philip to start uniting all French lands under the royal crown. Louis VII was fortunate in being able to pass his inheritance onto one son, who would prove himself an exceptionally capable leader. 
Henry II was not so fortunate. In fact, his son's ambitions would prove to cause the downfall of his once great empire, which he had worked so hard and so diligently to create. Next week, I tell the story of those sons. Henry, Geoffrey, Richard and John. The struggles both within the family and with the new King of France, Philip II, known to his supporters as Philip Augustus. I hope you can join me then. Until then, goodbye.